and welcome to RipperCast. Today's episode is a general conversation about current events in Ripperology, discussing the latest news, developments, and the recent conference in Salisbury. Joining me today is a first-time panelist, Mr. John Reese. Also here today is Trevor Bond, a noted researcher and speaker at many of the conferences. Author and researcher Neil Bell is here, as well as another author of note, Mr. Mark Ripper. And sitting in as a guest, the true host of the RipperCast, Jonathan Menges, is here today. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen, and welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Allie. You're welcome, Jonathan. How does it feel to be in the seat of the guest as opposed to the host? It feels wonderful. I have nothing on my shoulders, so... Well, in theory, I didn't really plan for this either, so I've got nothing on my shoulder, so it should be a really interesting podcast all around. It's going to be that sort of Skype conversation, is it? It is. I, it, it, that's basically the entire premise. From, you know, you can't see me from sort of chest down, so you don't know what I've got on down there. <laughs> Luckily, this is all audio, but I can tell you, ladies, Mark Ripper, he's looking fierce right now, so we'll hook you up with some contact details after the fact. Um, today's uh, RipperCast is basically just a, a general state of Ripperology conversation that was sort of prompted by a, a lot of different little topics that have been brought up recently in Ripperology from what is a Ripperologist, uh, the state of our conferences, the state of our business, uh, what the news that is happening in Ripperology currently, uh, from the latest books to uh, the latest brouhaha's to the latest controversies. So what do you guys think? Hmm, wonder what's been in the news lately. Mm. I can't really think of much. I can't it's either. Dull, really, isn't it? <laughs> it's been something about a table runner or something. Like that, right? <laughs> well, obviously, <laughs> what we're all like dancing around the topic is uh, Russell Edwards uh, going on every newscast in the world announcing that DNA has proven who Jack the Ripper is. So, what do you guys think of the case that he has laid forth? Fine yeah, by me. <laughs> I'm cool with it. You're convinced, Jonathan? Case closed? Yeah, it's about time, don't you think? Absolutely. So shall we just end this podcast now and, you know, go out for a beer? <laughs> um, it should be stated that we tried to get Jari uh, Lou Helene, I think is my, you might be able to pronounce it that way, and uh, Russell Edwards on the podcast to join us several times over several months, and they've declined. So we feel free that we can talk about them. Uh, since the opera has been extended, that they appear, and they said no. So, well, I'll mention um, my little message from Russell Edwards after we get a little bit more into this. Um, there was a conference recently, obviously in Salisbury, the uh, Whitechapel Society put on a conference, and they had uh, both of the gentlemen uh, were there. And there has been some controversy over both uh, the manner in which questions were allowed, which is to say, there were no spontaneous questions allowed. You had to submit. Uh, questions months ahead so you couldn't most conferences when people go to a Jack the Ripper conference a person speaks a question will arise based on what they say at their conference sort of generically spontaneously they raise their hand at the end there's a 15 minute question and answer session and you get your questions answered it was not allowed at this uh, conference uh, all questions had to be submitted uh, ahead of time and uh, no spontaneous questions were allowed. And that's sort of where this controversy has come in because on the message boards, uh, Chris Phillips and Tracy Jensen, am I getting that name right? 
Ianson. 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 Um, both have done some really good work and basically sort of shown that there's some problems, shall we say, with the DNA evidence as put forth. And no questions on the DNA were asked at uh, the conference. Now, Jonathan and I being Americans, neither one of us attended the conference, but we do have both uh, Trevor, uh, Mark, and John Reese here who were at the conference to sort of give you their perspective on uh, both their talks uh, and what they think of, you know, that whole situation. So what do you guys think of the case made or not made based on what you heard or have read in his books? Well, I wasn't actually in the room for uh, either of the gentlemen's talks, so uh, I can't comment on those. Oh, oh, so you didn't stay for the con- the the actual chat? Uh, no, uh, due to circumstances uh, surrounding it, um, I left the room, and uh, so did uh, Trevor as well. Okay, so we only have one person here then who can <laughs> give us. A- Over to you, Mark. Over to you, Mark. <laughs> Tell us, Mark. What what's your what's your perspective? Well, um, well, where to start? Um, the, so I think, I mean, I, I would say personally that I really enjoyed the conference. I thought it was a, it was a good two days, two and a half days. Um, full of, um, you know, taking taking the sort of intrigue out of the equation, there was lots of other stuff to enjoy, actually. Um, and the whole thing wasn't I, I, about... I, I, I think that's important. I, I, to, so I think the and whole thing is about, about Russell Edwards, and it, the whole thing wasn't about Russell Edwards, whether you love him or loathe him. So, yeah, I think that's an important point to make at this point, yeah. that there were many other people who put a lot of work into the conference, um, and hopefully, you know, th- this might be the start of, of moving on and looking at that, rather than just the fuss about what wasn't, wasn't asked to Russell Edwards. Oh, I do want to get to uh, yes, Sarah Weiss's chat, and also uh, Robert Anderson's, and some bloke named Trevor Bond, who, pff, whatever, he had a little chat, which, you know, we don't need to go into that one too much. But, um... <laughs> but, um... So, I, I mean, I think my, over, my, my sort of overarching um, uh, comment on... Um, on Edwards and Yari is that I mean Ali you just said that uh, questions had to be submitted months in advance that isn't true um, the deadline was the Monday before the conference began so it wasn't months it was days um, and this is kind of I mean I think that a lot of the stuff which has been said on the internet since then isn't very reliable you can't really talk to two people who've got the same story yep um, so I think that, I mean, my opinion is no better than anyone else's, really. And, you know, oh, I, 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 I haven't given your opinion yet. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm trying to work to but I haven't quite, you know, um, so, I mean, uh, I think opinions, you know what they say about opinions, um, you know, they're like, um, you know, dead babies hidden under boxes in the garage, everyone's got one. So... <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, I mean, at the moment, I think the NSA must be finding it very difficult to understand what they're actually monitoring, uh, because the internet has been full of, um, you know, more more um, column inches have been written about this, um, sort of, in the amateur, um, amateur circles of Facebook and Casebook and... JTR forums than um, you know most major political crises globally. So 
I kind of think that a lot of it has been kind of blown out of proportion. You can't really, I don't think you can necessarily rely on one person's perspective to be totally definitive. I think, well, I mean, I think what you what we can say is that is that Yari and Russell didn't acknowledge the criticisms which have been made about the book. And to me, that is that is a problem. Because I think at the very least, whether whether there was an issue around the que- which questions were asked, which questions weren't asked, which questions were permitted and which ones weren't permitted, I think at the very least, they could have said, we are aware of and acknowledge that criticisms have been made. And then they could have gone on to say, and we can answer them or we can't answer them at the moment or, or, we, or we've made a mistake, whatever. Um, I think the fact that they failed to do that doesn't necessarily affect well on them. On the other hand, a lot of that's not necessarily a definitive statement either, because I don't think that the way other things went reflects well on everybody else. So I kind of think no one comes out of this with their hands totally clean, but I do think that we need to know an awful lot more before we can come to a reliable opinion about what they've written. Does that sound like an opinion? Yeah, and I do want to say I am prone to hyperbole. So yes, you know, my point about the months in advance was, you know, the, the, the thing about submitting it came out prior and there were no spontaneous questions allowed. And me, I, I never, I always like to listen to what somebody has to say and then questions arise based on, you know, I've never been, you know, going to a conference and thought, oh, so-and-so is going to be speaking and had this list of questions already in mind. But you're right, I was hyperbole a bit there. And I do want to point out, you know, we did, I did personally contact uh, Mr. Edwards because I had been told, and again, this is the the rumor of the internet and there's factions going on and infighting and warring. And again, I was not there. I do not know what occurred. I'm only listening to this group's opinions and that group's opinions. And like you said, although I'm very afraid to go in your backyard now, everybody has an opinion. <laughs> um, you know, um, but I did contact Mr. Edwards and I said, there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, that's being said. We have been told that no questions about the DNA were allowed is what people are saying. That no questions about the DNA error, because for those who don't know, there have been some questions about the method and what the DNA results actually were and possibly that they're, what they're claiming they have they have is not actually what they have. So I did say, you know, there's a rumor going around, no DNA questions were allowed at the conference. Um, would you like to either submit a, a reply here or on the podcast? We'd be happy to to have you. And the response that I got back from Russell Edwards was that no questions regarding the DNA was submitted um, and that, uh, hold on, I, wa- I don't want to misrepresent his words, um, uh, that there were no questions excluded, that he would have been happy to have answered uh, any questions, but no DNA questions were submitted. So I said, well, if you're happy to answer any questions, that's great. Would you like to, we could clear this up right now and I could submit a couple of questions to you and that solves it. You know, if no questions were asked, then obviously you can't be held accountable for not answering anything. Would you mind asking a couple of questions? And they wrote back, no DNA questions regarding the DNA was submitted and so I asked again, would you be happy, would you be willing to answer a couple of questions? And I got back, uh, I need to check. 
I need to check, I need to, I, I will get back to you once I've spoken to relevant people on the matter, and I haven't heard back from them since, so they, they sort of put on this, we're, we're, we're happy to answer any DNA questions, it's just that none were asked, and yet when... There are no American tanks in Baghdad. <laughs> there was nothing. So, so there does seem to be this sort of, uh, on everybody's side, this sort of dancing and shuffling around. Yeah. Here's a direct question. Yeah. Answer I mean, it or not. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. My, my kind of, I'm, I'm not taking sides on this because actually I don't really want to take sides. And my view is, as I think I kind of tried to articulate before, that we actually know too little about what they say they've found to be able to come to a good judgment about it. Uh, yeah, but just jump in quickly and then maybe, yeah, maybe we can all move on from this. Um, Similar. First off, before I say anything, I'm just going to second Mark's thing and say, no, I've got no interest in, in taking sides. And actually, I've sort of come, I, I've had a bit of a strange journey with this, really, because back when Russell Edwards' book was, was first coming out and was first trailed in the papers, I was quite vigorously sort of defending, not necessarily the theory, because I didn't know the full details of what the theory was then. But I was certainly defending his right to write a book and to, to have it fairly judged. Um, and I do still believe that some of the initial backlash against the book, um, whether it was because he was a bit of an outsider to the field or whether it was, you know, post-Cornwell people getting their backs up with someone saying, I've 100% solved it, you know, that, that's not my question to answer. But I did actually argue against and even some of the, the misinformation that was coming out about the theory then. And I've tried and tried and tried to give um, particularly Dr. Yari um, the benefit of the doubt, really, as a clearly a very well-respected scientist, a very well-respected um, academic institution. But it is becoming harder and harder to um, fight the corner of the theory, given the, the prolonged radio silence. Um, the one thing I would say from the logistical point of view, as far as the running of last weekend's conference goes, um, as some people might know, I've been trying to sort of straddle a line between the two sides um, for the last week or so as someone with a foot in both camps, if you like, um, and just get the facts out there, really. And as Mark rightly said, there was a certain prescribed form to the questions that had to be submitted. They had to be submitted to a certain person on the Whitefield Society organising committee in response to a certain email during a certain time period. Um, questions from non-delegates were considered ineligible. Questions raised on the internet were considered ineligible. Um, and the MC... Um, for whatever reason, didn't present any of their own questions um, in response to, to any of the other questions that were being raised in, in the wider field or in the media. Um, and all of that is entirely the right of the organising committee, really, to administrate things however they want. But I think we'll all agree that it, it was a missed opportunity, really. Um, as John says, for whatever reason, we were, were made to feel that it was best that we were not there for that part of the, uh, the conference. That was our our own personal decision taken, mine was taken independently of John's and John's was taken independently of mine. Um, so we, we can't really comment on exactly what was said then. The impression I've got was certainly that it was a, a missed opportunity and not the kind of thing that you'd expect to see um, as a, a sort of rigorous interrogation at an academic conference. Um, but that that the blame for that shouldn't necessarily fall directly at the, the feet of the Whitechapel Site Committee, I don't feel. But as, as Mark has said, really, it's it's the detriment of Russell Edwards's theory, and as Ali points out, it's it's up to him really to decide to answer these things. And and I'll say it again that 
I find it hard to believe that a scientist as well respected as Dr. Lewelinen would have made such a basic um, error. And that was my initial response. And that's with no disrespect to Chris or Tracy or Rob, who all of whom I know quite well. Um, but I just felt that maybe there was some simple answer where he could say, well, what they haven't considered is this. Um, but the longer that they seem to not be willing to give such a simple answer that would get them so much credit back in the eyes of people, the, the more worrying it seems to uh, seems to appear, really. One thing I've got here that I'd just like to read out quickly before we hopefully move on. I'm indebted to Paul Begg for digging this up. Um, but it's been said, as Mark says, in the sort of um, social media whirlwind over the last week, it's been repeatedly said that Russell and Yari have never answered questions on the alleged error 3141C, 3151C. I'm sure most people listening know what I'm referring to there. Uh, but actually they have on one occasion. So Paul Begg has dug this out for me. This is from an article, an interview on bio.com, which is the uh, internet magazine of an American television network called A&E Television Networks, LLC. This is from an interview on November the 7th, 2014, um, and this is the quote from the interview. In an exclusive interview, Edwards defends his research. This is a quote now from Russell Edwards. Number one, may I just say that the article in The Independent was incorrect. He doesn't explain how it was incorrect. And number two, it was one piece of a huge puzzle, and that wasn't the significant piece, ellipsis. It had no influence on the fact that we actually solved the mystery through the seamen, meaning on the shore, uh, and we had the match with the blood of the descendant, meaning of Kosminski. The Edo's DNA match was an extra. So make of that what you will, really. But I think it's important to, to say they, they have at least attempted to address it once. To me, that seems, I have to say, in my personal opinion, um, that seems to be moving the goalposts somewhat. Because if you look at all the initial um, publicity for the book, it was very much about the fact that they had, on the one hand, a Kosminski DNA match, and on the other hand, an Edo's DNA match. And to me, personally... The family story that the shawl is related to a Jack the Ripper victim is not in itself enough to say because there may be Kosminski DNA on an article of clothing from the period that that makes him Jack the Ripper. To me, without the Edo's um, identification, I think the whole theory is rather rather shaky. But for, for what it's worth, that is that it seems to be until we hear otherwise Russell Edwards's position that the Edo's uh, match was an extra and that the Kosminski identification such quality as that is, is enough on its own to uh, to solve the case, as he has said on many occasions, 100%. And I so. just want to put in here, because it sort of drives me crazy, we're dealing with several generations removed, a family. We have no Kuzminski DNA to compare it to. <laughs> so what you're... That, that is an important point, yeah. In what a lot you're of still looking at is the possibility that someone distantly, distantly, distantly related to... A poll, you know, we don't have a direct comparison here. So it, it is quite possible that any of us doing this podcast tonight could be tested and have the same mitochondrial DNA. It does not mean that we are related in any meaningful way. Yes, exactly. So that that's just that's like sort of like the ice pick in my eyeball when I hear we've you know we've matched Kosminski's DNA. Not not saying that that you know, but when like I've seen it on the boards and whatever, they matched Kosminski's DNA. Like no, because they don't have Kosminski's DNA to match it to. That's not they, possible. They have matched DNA related to a relative of that could belong to a relative of this living relative of Kosminski in the same or, way as they have 
matched DNA that could relate to Karen Miller, but could also relate to many of many, many other people. Obviously, it's, that takes us into the whole, is it tw one in 29,000? Is it one in 290,000? Is it one in 99 percent? Which we probably haven't got time to go into tonight. No. I have uh, yes, one thing. I think that that's all to make is the difference between nuclear DNA and mitochondrial DNA. Um, and you can't say this is Aaron Kosminski DNA unless it's nuclear DNA. You can say this is DNA that could be consistent with Aaron Kosminski. I, I want to uh, add something before. I know Trevor really wants to move on from this topic, but before I let him do that, um, uh, as far as uh, you know, the ability to question uh, Edwards and Jari at Salisbury, um, if if an outsider as myself and you guys before the conference were looking at this, you could see that the train had left the station a long time ago with Edwards. And, and in the days leading up to the conference, they were asked about the uh, 315.1.c thing. Um, and, and, uh, and this was just within a couple of days of the conference, they completely brushed it aside. I think they just said that, oh, well, the, you know, flat out, the criticism. Their positions, uh, what yeah, was their position seems. Yeah. Well, my, so let me just finish, finish my let me finish my thought real quick. So, so um, we knew uh, as observers who were uh, aside from getting ripperologists such as Ricky Cobb, Trevor Marriott, uh, it's, it, Rumbelow, I believe, made statements. Um, all these folks at, uh, leading up to Salisbury, they they were pushing. Um, they were pushing back the entire way. So uh, the idea that at Salisbury uh, they would accept questions about the DNA and, and in that event give an honest answer was, the, I mean, un unbelievable in my opinion at that time. So I think that a, a, a percentage of the Ripperology community who is now upset uh, at Whitechapel Society and and how the uh, conference um, ended up, uh, we're really just basically wanting to see a confrontation. We wanted we wanted people at the conference to publicly challenge these folks, knowing that they would uh, not give us a straight answer. Um, I mean, it, it almost seemed like it uh, it would have been a, just uh, we were just wanting an opportunity to throw more logs onto this fire, a witch burning kind of thing, uh, right? Which John, think, is not constructive, not constructive, constructive whatsoever. Um, I think you've anticipated my a point which I was going to make, which is that if you kind of put yourself in in Russell Edwards and Yara's shoes, by the time they reach Salisbury, they've had two months of quite vehement criticism and sometimes what I would call personal abuse on the internet from people who are identifying themselves as referologists. By the time they reach Salisbury, I think they're feeling defensive. And I think that this isn't something which the Whitechapel Society have come out and said, but I think it's a possible hypothetical explanation for what happened, is that if they were feeling defensive about answering questions about DNA. The Whitechapel Society might have said, we can accommodate your wish not to answer those questions, thinking that let's provide these people with an amenable environment in which to discuss their findings with other people who are interested in those findings in order that we develop a relationship and they come back and tell us more in the future because there isn't anywhere else in rhythmology they can go right now to get a fair hearing. And I kind of think if that's the approach the Whitechapel Society 
took, thinking more about the long game, I can't really argue with that because actually we do know, and as Paul Begg pointed out in his um, conversation with Neil's story, which was very interesting, there have been times when trusted researchers have had access to files and then other people have come in and have been rather bombastic about it. And that has kind of spoiled the relationship between, for example, the police and the trusted researcher because they suddenly, everyone gets tarred with the same brush eventually. So I kind of think this might have been something which was strategic on the part of the Whitechapel Society because they're thinking, well, these guys have got information we want. We might not get it now, but we might get it in the future if we can show we're friendly towards them. That's not an unreasonable position to take, in my view. I don't, I don't say that that's the answer to what happened, but I say that's, that's not I, an unreasonable position. Again, again an, an inexpert view without anyone having said that to me, Mark, but I think you're probably spot on. Um, my only thing I would say to that, and as I say, I, I haven't come to beat the Whitechapel Society over the head with a stick because as anyone who has been following this for the last week will know that's not my position but I suspect again I don't know but I, I, su I suspect in private probably some of the Whitechapel Society committee would, would accept that if that was the idea then perhaps there should have been a, a judgment that if we're getting these people there to take up two speakers worth of slots for a conference and they're not prepared to talk about the DNA which is the entire basis of their theory have you diluted that to the point that actually what is there that anyone wants to hear from them which which is the unfortunate situation we ended up in now there are certain people i agree who have to look at the way they may have presented themselves in asking those questions um and as you say i don't think there's any any real saints or sinners on either side um a hundred percent so it's a it's a sorry situation we ended up in but i think we've ended up in a situation where actually there was a couple of hours of the, the main conference, of the only conference of the year, where actually I don't think anyone really got anything out of it. We didn't, ha well, actually, we didn't, we didn't learn a lot of new stuff. Uh, I mean, Yara's talk was very interesting. DNA 1001, uh, whatever the equivalent is in America, 101, right? Um, for people who know nothing about DNA. So that was quite interesting um, in and of itself, but it didn't really tell us the answer to the question about 314.1c or 315.1c. I think what the other, what we have got is a situation which actually it's not as novel as people think. I gather that when Paul Feldman went to the Cloak and Dagger Club years ago, um, he took questions in advance rather than having questions from the floor necessarily. Um, so it's not quite as sort of unique and unprecedented as people have kind of alleged I think and also I think there has been a general trend towards saying that Russell and Yari were were calling the shots whereas the Whitechapel Society should have been calling the shots and saying no 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 hang on if you're going to come here you're going to talk about this and I don't actually think why, why can't we accommodate the idea that the Whitechapel Society might have agreed to a request they made I mean, I think that's a much more reasonable interpretation. It doesn't have to be one person was dominating, one person was active and one person was passive, or one group was active, one group was passive. Mm. I think it's much more likely that a compromise was reached. So I think a lot of the sort of, a lot of the stuff which has been going around on the internet has been quite inflammatory, quite one-sided, and I, and I think in view of it, taking the book as a whole, we need to know a hundred times more than what we know now to be able to put their discovery or what's wrong with their discovery into its proper context. I, th I think part of the problem has been that, uh, A, emotions have been running high, uh, B, people who um, weren't there, haven't been directly involved, have been outraged and in getting involved on B, 
bits yeah. of a story and see there have been people out there who have been muddying the waters um, with, I don't know if they're trying to be helpful, but, uh, you know, adding things to the conversation information that's either not true or they're misinformed about. And uh, I think that's part of the reason why it's exploded and uh, it's really unfortunate it has. Well, as, uh, sorry, as someone who wasn't there, who I really truly wanted to attend, but it was just not possible this year, I, I was one of the people when I found out that what I consider to be the key question in this business, because I do look when the conferences happen that I'm not able to attend, I you know, go to the people who attended, I ask them questions, I, you know, oh, who's talk? I do want, you know, talk about Sarah. Wise. Sorry, Wise. Sarah Wise, I just said her name and now it was gone. You know, those, because I, I meant when we can't attend, me being American and it's not just a train ride and a, and a, and a hop over, it, it's quite a distance to go. When I'm not able to attend, I do kind of look at these as, People who are lucky enough to attend, I, I want to, to get them and pick their brains. And when you find out there was this great opportunity, and it, it, so much of it, like, I'm sure Robert Anderson is just outright, Trevor, too, you know, they gave talks, they did it. And the whole hoopla is about this one question that wasn't asked. And it just seems like, oh, it's such a wasted opportunity. And how much time is spent now on the the back and the forth and the this and the that and the whatever. And nobody's talking about anything except the one question that wasn't asked kind of yeah. thing in regards no, no, to this I, conference. Go ahead. I, I think that's the, the, the biggest crime of this is that the other fantastic talks have been overshadowed completely by this. And I, you know, it, it's very unfortunate for the people who did give those fantastic talks, such as Robert Anderson, Sarah Wise, uh, his head is going to inflate now, but Trevor and uh, mm. all the other speakers. Well, so I'm happy moving on from Russell's because obviously, you know, there's nothing much more to be said. The question mm. isn't being answered. I don't think there is. I don't think there yeah. is any more to be said until right. they decide whether they're going to come out and, and tell us more or not. And if they don't, I think... It, the theory is dead in the water. Um, if they do, then maybe we'll all turn around and say, oh, yeah, actually, we did get it wrong and it, and it is sensible. But, but yeah, the, the ball is very much in their court. And I think, as Mark says, we could all go around winding each other up and, and go around in circles for the next five years waiting for them to say anything. But uh, there's nothing more to be said till, till they say it, really. Yeah, that, um, that, has, I mean, that has to be right. That has to be right. The fact that we don't know now how to judge this doesn't mean that in the future we won't know how to judge it. No. We have to have more I, information. I think exactly. it's an in parallel. We're presumably, obviously, we're talking about, you know, what's happened this year um, eventually. And I imagine by the end we'll, we'll come on in the tried and, tried and tested formula to talk about what, we might be looking forward to next year. And I think there's an interesting parallel at the minute in that one thing we have got coming up very shortly, um, probably early next year, as I understand it, is the long-awaited second edition of Trish Cornwell's book. Of course, that's about a decade old now, and we know that she's had some very good researchers working with her on that. And I, for one, am willing to give her the benefit of the doubt on that and see what she's, what she's got to offer new. Um, and I think, you know... My, my view often on all these suspect books is that they all come out with a bit of blurb saying they've solved it 100%. Uncle Jack had sold it, solved it 100%. You know, that, that's what publishers like to see. That's what gets you on the shelves of Waterstones. Yeah. Um, but they never have. But every, sometimes there's something in there that progresses the case a little bit. And that was my yeah. hope 
personally for obviously everyone takes different things out of books but that was my hope for the russell edwards book that if the science had been sound and it may still well be they're not helping me believe that but it may well still be but if it was i don't think that it proves that aaron kosminski was jack the ripper even if the dna is entirely so perfect but if the edo's dna is perfect then i think what he could have done and I guess still could have done potentially, although I think we all need more convincing of it now, is changed our understanding of that crime scene forever. Obviously, so, the fact that it had been horrifically, you know, according to modern standards. Well, uh, yes. This is what I'm saying. If hypothetically yeah. the site's held up. Um, and Cornwell, similarly, I think there might, you know, there were, there were interesting things in, in her first book that got lost in all the brouhaha about the fact that she said she'd 100% solved it, she didn't acknowledge Gene Overton Fuller, etc. ad infinitum. But I think there, there, are, there is a general, I've been talking about this today, and there's still a lot of anger out there about Cornwell and some of the things she said and the way she said them. But I think there's a generally, there's a, a wave of opinion that we're willing to say, okay, you've come back, you know, we've all heard that she might be a bit more humble with things this time, and let's see what you've got to say. I think it'll be interesting to see Edwards has been the biggest thing since Cornwell in that sense and in that sense of a backlash. In 10 years' time, can we imagine us, them having answered these questions enough that there'll be a revisionism about Edwards and a second edition coming out and people will still be interested in it? I'm not so sure, but I think it's an interesting parallel at the minute. Well, Patricia Cornwell is probably getting a second book purely because, of course, she's Patricia Cornwell. But going back to the Patricia Cornwell, and I, I made a little note for myself about something Trevor Bond said earlier, and I sort of want to get everybody's take on this because this is sort of the general state of Ripperology podcast. And Trevor said something that I keep hearing this over and over again about, did we take against Russell Edward, you know, because he's an outsider to the field. That was what Trevor said earlier. And and I, I do find that interesting because I see this a lot where, oh, people, you ripperologists, you don't want somebody coming in and, and solving the case for you and all of this kind of thing. And I just find that so very interesting because we were all outsiders to the field at some point. We were all people coming in with our own ideas. And I never felt... Uh, you know, obviously, I, I had some grand arguments because I'm an argumentative person, but I never, ever got the idea that I was viewed as some little upstart outsider to the case, so who was I to have an opinion? But when you said that about Patricia Cornwell, I, I will personally say I have an unreasoning dislike of the woman based purely <laughs> on the fact that she went on national TV because she, she did... She didn't help herself. Well, she had a platform that we did not yeah. have. And that's, and yeah, that, she, that's... She went on national TV, and at the time, there was basically, at the time she went on TV, there was one Jack the Ripper website, basically, at the time that she was on, you know, Dateline or whatever it was, a national platform. And and she'd come in as, quote-unquote, an outsider to the field, spent about six months researching it, came out with a book that probably made more money than any of us combined has ever made off of Jack the Ripper, and she went on national TV and said this, quote, I still remember it, just because you run a website about Jack the Ripper doesn't mean you know anything about it. And, you know, I, I, I took against that. I'm sure you can all figure out the reasons why, about why I personally would have, you know, uh, been offended on behalf of, you know, Stephen Ryder, who was at, at that time uh, the only person running a website on Jack the Ripper, basically. And, and it is sort of that outside, that outsider 
people cast themselves as as the martyrs against our yeah, unreasoning, exactly. as if we're all this massive herd attacking the newcomer. I think that's right, and, and that is that is an interesting parallel with this time. You know, I, I really do want to move on from. Uh, <laughs> From well, we're just discussing the outsider paradigm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think there is an interesting parallel there with something else that a lot of people are going to be aware of if they've been following the social media for Ore, which is that, and I'm going to couch this very carefully with the way I word this, because I know um, that, that there are people involved in this story who have proved themselves to be enthusiastic users of the British legal system. So... <laughs> I'm going to be very careful with how I word this, but there were two gentlemen who turned up with Russell Edwards at the conference last weekend who were never introduced to any of the delegates um, in what capacity they were there. Um, so far as I know, they were known to the organising committee as just being two quote-unquote friends of Russell Edwards who had come along with him. And in the absence of any evidence to, this, to the, the contrary, I will believe that's what they were. But they happened to behave very much as if they were actually private security. I don't believe that's an unreasonable assumption, given that we weren't given any other explanations for their behaviour and the way they behaved. And that did leave a bit of an unfortunate feel for a number of people um, to the weekend. It didn't make Mr Edwards feel particularly approachable, certainly. Um, and the first thing I thought when I saw... As I say, if Russell Edwards can prove to me that they, they were not there in that capacity, then I will publicly um, say that I was wrong in that opinion. But from the way they present, the way things happened, I don't believe it was an unreasonable opinion, um, but I will take it back if I am wrong. But if that, the, where, being under that opinion, when they walked in, the very first thing that I thought was, are we here again? Are we back to Patricia Cornwell claiming that there were gangs of ripperologists basically scouring the streets with burning torches looking to lop her head off. Because Russell Edwards has been, as Mark says, the subject of some very vehement um, attacks in terms of his theory, his credibility, etc. But despite some of the, uh, the, the myths that seem to be gaining credence at the moment, um, I haven't seen, and nor has anyone else been able to provide me with, a single example of a physical threat made to Russell Edwards in the same way as I've not seen any physical threats made to Patricia Cornwell. And yet here we were again with an outsider coming in, giving the impression that they felt that they were going to be physically attacked. And, and on the one hand, it's quite easy to look at that and think that that's a bad thing on, on their part, that they've, they've misinterpreted this or that they want to give the impression that they're under that much threat. But if Russell Edwards and if Patricia Cornwell really genuinely felt that they were under a physical threat, then then that's kind of their right to deal with that however they want, I suppose. And actually, maybe we all need to look at ourselves at a field, as a field and wonder why, why does this keep happening, that people keep misinterpreting what maybe we see as, as you know, defensiveness and no, uh, serious <laughs> questioning on our field, no. and they think that they need to bring bodyguards with them. I'm, I'm not, not even, I'm that, kinda... that's just not even, because that whole concept of like, I wasn't even, I honestly wasn't even thinking about the whole bodyguard scenario when I was talking about the outsider, but let's face it, that's ridiculous. Russell Edwards runs a store in the middle of Whitechapel that everybody knows where it is and everybody knows where he works. And if any one of us, like there's tours that go in there, we all know the area. If any one of us were nuts and going to do something like that where are we more likely going to be to go beat up russell edwards would be 
in the alleys of Whitechapel where we all know he works. They, and uh, be found. We're not gonna... Those are gentlemen mm -hmm. um, that Trevor was referring to also hang out at his shop. Um, yeah. So, so there, whether we're not going to do it in a conference in front of 50 people well, of live witnesses. I, I think that they are, I don't think that, that the two of them uh, had anything I, sure, he brought him along to the conference, but I think they kind of accompany him anywhere anymore. I'm, they, they do hang out at his shop. They, what you know, I, I don't know that he's ever done a tour, but supposedly he has a tour group that. Um, so they they were known um, beforehand. Des, I believe specifically, was known of in the Ripperology community of, ha of hanging around um, Russell Edwards. So, but anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. We can. But I was more referring to that whole like, do newcomers? I do know newbies get the stick a little bit because you have to go through the trial and error process. But are we less likely to take on board somebody's book solution? Well, can I can I just interject there because we're talking um, about Russell Edwards as a newbie. Um, but if we actually read his book, I mean, he first got into the subject from the from Hell film, which what two thousand and one was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so, it was. so 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 we're talking like you know thirteen fourteen years. Um, is that classified him as a newbie? What is a ripperologist? <laughs> what qualifies you, know? you to well, be? So 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 the guy. I think the guy should really know what field he's getting into. After 12, 13, 14 years. Well, I, I, one of the I things. Do... I'm, I'm ahead, not excusing John. it, by the way. No, I don't sorry, excuse Mark. it, but I think you should be aware of it. I've finished. <laughs> Mark, Mark, you were going to say something? That's a good point. Uh, I, 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 I can edit this out, probably, because Neil's not going to answer it, and neither would I if I was him. Um, <laughs> but I'm just going to try and be devil's advocate here then. And. Uh, and ask, would you go so far then, Neil, as to suggest that maybe he does realise what field he's getting in, but it, it suits him to present himself as uh, as being a bit more naive about it than he is? Um. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> um, possibly. I mean, I've, I've been past Russell's shop a few times and I've not seen the gentleman we're referring to. Um, so and, and he's been in there on his own so it's not as if he's not approachable I know um, other reprologists have actually been in and spoken to him on his own and he is he is quite approachable um, if he's portraying himself as, as a as a victim from his nasty reprologists um, yeah I can see how it could benefit him I'm not saying that's what he's doing uh, at all um, but um, you've got to bear in mind that uh, in the whole wide world the as reprologists, they're a small minority compared to you know the the, the general public, as yeah. it were. And uh, you know they, they they might not be aware of our little world, as it were, and how we operate. One of the things which was prompted by um, the media splash which Russell Edwards' book made in September was op-ed pieces. There was one in the Guardian written by um, someone I don't. I don't remember her name. And it was it was a rather disparaging piece about ripperologists think this, ripperologists behave this way, uh, rip, this is what ripperologists' values are. And um, actually, you don't have to spend much time with ripperologists to realise that none of them disagrees with anyone else. So there isn't a common set of values which ripperologists hold and cherish and maintain. 
um, there isn't a common set of opinions because people just don't agree with each other. I think from the outside looking in, it's possible to stereotype riverologists and to kind of attribute to them a set of common values and opinions, but actually within the field, that isn't true. Um, I think that's right, yeah. And I think there is a misunderstanding of what riverologists do which doesn't stop people putting their op-eds in The Guardian, because it was The Guardian this this. It uh, was, yes. Yeah, I remember. Um, I mean, people do... That will that will continue, but I think actually what we're not well represented in the outside world. We're not, because people always judge, and that was clearly what that article did, because I remember that article well, and I remember us discussing it at the time, Mark, that it was that, you know, there, there were all the usual cliches that we're all tired of now, really, that, you know, we... we glamorize the violence and don't care about the lives of the victims we're all mainly you know she didn't quite say that we're all mainly uh, you know single white men sitting in dusty bedrooms but she might as well have so and we say those are tired cliches and we all go oh god that again but th- the fact is they they do keep coming up and as we discussed at the time my my feeling on it really is that i i don't think there is any understanding in the in the public domain of what we, if you like, um, quote unquote, really do day to day. I mm. think the general public view ripperology as like it or lump it, the likes of Russell Edwards, the likes of Tony Williams, you know, when they go into a bookshop and they see a book on Jack the Ripper on the shelf, the likes of Trevor Marriott, they think that's what ripperologists think at the moment. And yeah. they don't but realize don't a lot that. of good work that's going on behind, below the scene, behind the scenes. And, I, I don't have an answer to this, but we've got an image problem and it comes to the point where you can't just keep putting your head in the sand and saying, well, we're not like that, well, we're not like that, well, we're not like that. Somehow we've got to get people to realise what we really are like, I think. I mean, if, you, if anyone's but, up for a bit of, bit of fun, um, it, <laughs> it, it came to my attention recently that actually what makes a ripperologist was recently defined um, and I can give you the definition so you can check. Is there a quiz? Um, there's, there's criteria. There's criteria. So you have to tick it off on your uh, quiz sheets if you meet these criteria. This is, this okay. is what a ripperologist is. I'm going to apologise to the person um, whose work I am totally misrepresenting now after we've had our fun. Okay? So... Um, Do we get prizes for who gets the most? Well, yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see. Um... The prize is um, an evening with Trevor Marriott. <coughs> I'm out. Um, in keeping, so uh, maybe I ought to apologise to that person now. So Tom Westcott wrote a piece for the Fortean Times, um, in uh, so published in the November 2014 issue um, with, about the sh- about the shawl and the issues around it, and it's a very nicely written piece. And I am now totally cherry picking one part of his article. Um, to have a bit of fun with and he's not gonna uh, you know i mean i so i apologize to tom um for totally mi- misrepresenting what you're he wrote. so very british in this lead up just get to it man <laughs> sure, be an sure, american sure. get to it so, so, so he says he says he says uh, in keeping with past sensations the man making the headline grabbing claims is not an actual ripperologist that means russell edwards right yep uh that is to say he has not spent years or decades studying the crimes poring over old newspapers or spending vast amounts of money on books and research materials. So those are your three 
key criteria if you're going to get into our gang, right? So it is spend years or decades studying the crimes. I take it that years or decades also continues to qualify the subsequent criteria. So, so years or decades sub- studying the time the the crimes, years or decades poring over all, old newspapers, and years or decades spending vast amounts of money on books and research materials. So that's what a ripperologist is. Um, are you ripperologists? I'm in America. What's a newspaper? Right. Okay. I've, I've never heard of these things. I mean, obviously, <coughs> Tom Westcott doesn't qualify for these because we don't have access. I mean, yes, we do have American newspapers that, you know, we have access to the British newspaper archives. We do not have access to your archives, so no American qualifies based on. I think pouring over the casebook newspaper archive would probably count. Okay, well, if, he, if, he doesn't say whether that counts. He, he doesn't say whether newspaper. it has to be a physical newspaper or not. Yeah, we don't have. Oh, yeah. I'm not sorry, specified. we're out. So, think, yeah. What, you know, what I'm about not sure I qualify decades? going by that. Yeah, yeah I, 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 by, I haven't spent much time looking at newspapers. By the, by the first two, but yeah, I think newspapers, again, and, you know, apologies to Tom, and I'm, I'm sure I'm proving his point in a way rather than disproving it. But. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, I think what we're what we're proving here, if anything, is that there are different there are different kinds of, of people that we you know that come into this big tent called ripperology, really. And certainly, I wouldn't say I've spent vast amounts of money buying up materials purely on the ripper. I've actually got very few ripper books. Yeah. Um, I've probably <laughs> spent vast amounts of money buying up material on. London on the Victorian era on on context, but that's because that's my angle at it. I, I'm not a I'm not a whodunit chap, um, but I'll quite at a conference I'll quite happily sit down and talk to a whodunit chap because it's nice to have a different perspective on things. But we are all we are all we're all individuals. I think the key word is vast. Um, yeah. You have to spend. You know, I don't know precisely how you. You know, is a hundred pounds a vast amount of money? Two hundred. Some pounds? people, it, to some people, a hundred pounds is a gigantic sum I mean I, I, ironically ironically one of the figures I have no idea what the what the credential for this figure is but one of the numbers which has been thrown around on the internet about the money Russell has spent Russell Edwards has spent pursuing his shawl data is 750,000 um, pounds <laughs> so I mean that is a vast amount of, sorry that is a vast amount of money it just is um you know, and even if we think that he was a decimal place out, seventy-five thousand pounds would still be a vast amount of money if we can change I mean, decimal places every time we see a number, right? So, yeah. so I mean, I think you know he, that he does seem to be a ripperologist from what, mm. what from what Tom says. I don't know what books Russell Edwards has at home, whether he has spent yeah. years studying. I mean, there know, was that, one coming back to the way that Russell Edwards sort of positions himself in relation to the field, and I, I'm aware that we. <laughs> Still not moving on, but uh, coming back to that, in relation to Mark's point about someone who has spent that much money on it, there was one, and coming back a bit to what Ali was saying, really, about the way that these people, such as Patricia Cornwell as well, often try and position themselves, it kind of a step above the field, really, as if we're, we're some sort of um, some sort of unwanted extremist offshoot, if you like. The, uh, we're the they're, crap on their like, shoe that they had to step yeah, on in order but, to get to but, where they're going, nice, but they don't want to associate with us. State, or is it too soon? But uh, there's a bit in Russell Edwards's book where he talks about speaking to 
one of the descendants, I can't remember off the top of my head whether it's Karen Miller or the unnamed Kosminski descendant, but he says that when he, he was very nervous when he was speaking to, her on, to them on the phone because he didn't want, he, and he made a point of impressing on them that he was a married man with children. He yeah. wasn't some single man with a room covered in pictures of Jack the Ripper. And yeah. I think that shows how he feels about other people who are interested in the case. And I don't think that's particularly useful. But going with Mark's point, I would argue that someone who spent, be it 75 or 750,000 pounds on trying to tra- trying to put a name to the killer probably can't look down on, uh, on a shelf full of books on the history of Southwark quite so much, can he, being also no, a married no. man? I mean, I, I think what we've got is we've got a situation where we don't really have a good definition of what a ripperologist is. Mm. And I think that Tom's... Some of Tom's criteria, which he specifies in that article, which is a very good article, I encourage you to read it. It's not just about that bit. I mean, that's just the bit I've kind of taken out uh, for my own uh, sort of like, you know, grisly, um, slightly self-important pleasure. So, <laughs> so I, I mean, I think there are other things to read in Tom's article. Um, but I don't know necessarily that he provides a definitive explanation for what a ripperologist is. And um, I don't know that we're ever going to come up with a, with a definition for what a ripperologist is. So therefore, you can't really have inclusion exclusion. It's, 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 there's, a, there's, a, you know, there's osmosis, isn't there? There are people coming in, yes. people going out. Well, people with side interests. And uh, yeah. just a, a quick plug on the Ripper conference site we've uh, launched every week. Uh, on the FAQ, the first question is, what is a ripperologist? And we've simply put someone who studies the Jack the Ripper case. So it's it's a lot more simplistic than Tom's definition. uh, I don't know if that's too simplistic, but... uh... I will say as a woman and also someone who sees sort of other aspects as well, like I think there's this defensive knee-jerk reaction that a lot of Ripperologists have because there is an interest in a murder case where five women were brutally slaughtered. And there is a fascination there that there is this sort of defensive, like, we aren't the creepy person who has, you know, women pictured, slaughtered, you know, posted on their wall. But I do think we also like to just like have that knee jerk defensive reaction and sort of dismiss that sort of kind of misses the point is that there are a lot of people who are drawn to the case precisely because of those sort of things. But I think the smaller community that we're all a part of, we do a good job of trying to weed those out. Like I do know on the Facebook message boards, you sort of have to write a little, a little email now explaining your interest and why you wish to join it. And there are those emails that come in where Jack the Ripper is my hero. And, you know, I've, I'm fascinated by him. And it's not like I'm fascinated by the case. I'm fascinated by the mystery. I'm fascinated by the history. It's Jack the Ripper's my hero, and I'm fascinated by him. And, you know, there is people who come. And I think, for the most part, we weed those out amongst ourselves. We sort of identify them and marginalize them quite quickly, and they realize that we're not that community for them. We're not the community with the black-lettered and the blood-splattered, you know. as far as it goes for the outside world, they... There is a difficulty recognizing that there is a kind of popular ripperology. The bottom of the pyramid is the popular ripperology, which is the kind of stuff you do see in bookshops. You do see, you know, people who have got um, a voice in um, kind of mainstream media to some extent. 
So I think there is a thing about popular ripperology, and then there is a kind of two-tier system where you get into people who are serious ripperologists. I use the word serious in its most kind of fragile form, I think, um, where actually the facts do matter, and uh, there is a degree of um, integrity about it, and that, that actually it's that part of ripperology which doesn't represent itself well to the outside world. What the outside world sees is the popular ripperology. Agreed. So my, we all need to be better behaved to represent ourselves well. I think so. I, I don't, fail. I don't <laughs> know that. Well. Or just shout louder about the good stuff we're doing, maybe, you know. Yes, I think, me, I, I, I think often the thing, is, the, the thing I'm more interested in and the thing I think does present us better is the kind of stuff on the periphery and the people who maybe wouldn't even necessarily identify themselves as first and foremost or purely um, a ripperologist. You know, I'm thinking of people like, you know, I've heard people argue in the past Philip Sugden was not a ripperologist because he didn't publish several books on it. But you, you can't study the case without going to that book. Rob House, I know, will say has said to me in the past, he doesn't consider himself a, a bona fide ripperologist, if you like. He's written the best suspect book there ever has been, I would argue, because it's properly academically sourced and argued rather than someone with a, a burning desire to, to frame person A, person B or person C. And then books, I mean, I, I haven't got your book yet, Neil. I've got it. I'm eagerly awaiting it um, as we speak. But Books like yours, Neil, are, to me, the, the more important work that we do, in a way, in that you're not just saying, just rehashing, and then Emma Smith went down here and this happened to her, and then Marianne Nichols went down here and this happened to her. It's how can we use that case as a window on, you know, a very important social part of British history um, and a specific element of that and t taking a real specialist's eye at that. And I, I think that I think that's important, and that's a lot of the good work that comes out of it. I think, and the the pot boilers of you know whoever is claiming, because the next person will claim it. it is not a dig at Russell Edwards. The the next person and the person after that and the person after that who come along and say I've a hundred percent solved it. That's that's not the quality work, and that's not the stuff that will endure, is it? We hope that the 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 cream will rise to the top, but let's face it. Uh, it's it's the people who yell the loudest and kick the hardest that tend to get the most press. And who's the one who has the unending speaking engagements and the unending tours and whatnot? It's not the person with the best academic book. It's the person who we all flat out know plagiarized 100% one of his books. And he still has a better career out of ripperology than you well, know, Rob I mean, House or... I think I'd argue with 100%. I think probably it's more like 99%. But, There's um, me and my hyperbole again. Yeah. <laughs> Only 99% of it was plagiarized. I, I think maybe Trevor's right. We have to shout louder about the good things we do because we're not coming across to the outside world in the way that we need to be. I agree. So we should all do better at that. And why don't we do that now? And uh, is there anything you guys uh, feel deserves a positive mention at this point? I, I, I think we need to backtrack to Salisbury, um, actually, and not, not mention the, the name of uh, certain speakers and discuss the other speakers who were there. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, what did you guys think of Sarah Wise's particular? Obviously, uh, that's the one I'm really dying to get some insight into. 
I, I found it fascinating. Uh, she had a very difficult slot, being that after lunch on a Sunday. But uh, I think you know she, she kept everyone interested. A um, lot of interesting information in her talk. Uh, it was obviously tailored as well to uh, the audience, and uh, it wasn't just a generic off-the-shelf talk. And can uh, you yeah, summarize I, it a little for those? Uh, uh, remember, she many has of a us new Americans, book out, correct? Yeah, and, and, yeah. It was it in conjunction with her new book, or? Yes, yeah, but, I think it's related. Um, I, I assume it's the new book is the uh, Inconvenient People. Can someone? Uh, That's right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the the talk was mostly on um, malicious uh, certification of lunatics. Uh, there was a lot of that on there. Um, there was a lot of stuff on uh, Forbes Winslow, and uh, yeah, that, that, I think that's. Uh, anything else I've missed out there? <laughs> no, like like John said, it was. Um, Anyone who hasn't read Sarah, uh, Inconvenient People, Sarah Wise's new book, it quite near the beginning she mentions the story of uh, Little and Forbes Winslow, who we all know, um, his father, I, I believe, I might have got that wrong, who was a, a, a mad doctor, as they were, as they were known, um, and was effectively murdered by a patient on an inspection one day uh, when he uh, bent over and a patient who was pretending to be asleep hammered a nail into his head. Um, although he recovered briefly, um, but died short, uh, relatively shortly after from the injuries. Um, but in the book, it That's kind the of NHS for you. kind of skips over that and uh, and then goes on to other stories. But she really developed that further and then went into Little and Forbes Winslow himself a little bit as well. And uh, as John said, I was just really impressed that you know of all the speakers, she was the one who you probably could have forgiven for turning up and saying, "This is the talk I normally give." Um, if I'm speaking at a library or whatever, and, and I'll just give it again. But it actually gave a, a real sense of someone whose name we all know from the case and gave a little bit more background to him, really. And she'd all, uh, and also uh, who turned out to have died in the hotel that the conference was in. So that, that was quite a nice little link that she turned up. So she put some actual effort into and some work into it, not just the standard phone-in exactly, sort yeah. of textbook lecture kind of thing. Yeah. Excellent. I'm sorry I missed that. I guess we have to plug Robert Anderson, although I would really appreciate nobody going into the amount of detail that I'm sure he went into no, he with was, accompanying photographs and whatnot. Oh. He, was, uh, he, he was kept uh, to, a, to a reasonable pace, um, thanks to Catcher's efforts at uh, actually managing his uh, slides for him. And rushing him along, so he, he didn't uh, go on too long or focus. Oh, it's not the long. length; it's just the detail of the subject <laughs> matter. I'm I have a very low squick tolerance, where I'm like, oh, I just didn't need to know that. <laughs> so, was, he, was he before lunch or after? Uh, Robert Anderson, for those who don't know, his talk was on syphilis and uh, you know disease, and apparently, you know, yeah. we all everybody got a, a nice safe sex lecture. Basically. And I'm in. Uh, I've been talking to him. He recorded his talk, and I've okay. uh, asked him um, twice now to uh, hand it over to me to upload as a solo podcast, all on its own. So we'll see if he can uh, do that. So there's a slight possibility that his entire talk will be able to be downloaded to listen to. So. Well, it's a nice that, cautionary but, tale but, for everybody attending a conference as to what the results can be <laughs> from attending a conference. I, I think that's going to be the conclusion of his talk, but it didn't quite work out. But uh, yeah, no, it's a very interesting talk. Um, um, and uh, it's very uh, food for thought, I thought, with uh, 
the uh, possibility of the canonical five and even Jack himself being uh, suffering from syphilis. It's, uh, you know, definitely made you think and uh, for the possibilities there. And any, any talk that starts with him explaining that uh, the tools he's showing you are uh, American <laughs> syphilitic medical tools because British Victorian medical tools sell for great amounts in Japan because they're in great demand of sex toys. It was all yes. uphill there, really. <laughs> How did he get them into the country? Where there's a will, there's a way, Neil. <laughs> you can pack anything in your check-on luggage. It's only your carry-on that they... Uh... Oh, so maybe, he said, the yeah, maybe he said personal use only. I really <laughs> would love to see the x-ray scanner, though, as his suitcase rolled through the belt where they're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I think it'd be one of those moments where it got to the point where they just thought it wasn't worth asking. And Trevor Bond, you gave a talk at the conference as well. Why don't you uh, summarize that for us? Uh, I, I can try. I mean, <laughs> it sort of snowballed, really. I mean, my talk was an extension of a, a very short sort of presentation I gave as part of the 125th anniversary conference last year when we happened to go and see um, Mary Kelly's grave in St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Leytonstone and actually realised quite late on um, that it wasn't going to be possible to get everyone to Mary Kelly's grave at once. So I said, well, obviously McCarthy's grave's just round the corner, so if we split the groups, I'll do a little bit of chat at McCarthy's for half the group. Someone can do a little bit of chat at Kelly's at the other half. Ended up being Lindsay um, Siviter, giving everyone a, a nice song at Kelly's grave. Um, and then we swapped over. Um, and Frog Moody very kindly asked me to expand on that further this time with a, a longer talk. Um, as it turned out, there was still research I'd done for the initial short talk um, that still had to be excised from this one. Um, it's often the rewarding thing I find with this case is the people who haven't been looked into a million times before because you just keep turning up stuff. So I'm going to have a few. Um, I mean, Libya Triviata deserves a, a massive mention at this point for a um, ceaseless work in helping me with this and I know she was heavily involved with Roberts as well and the amount of stuff we've turned up we're going to have articles coming out hopefully quite regularly over the next year or so um, just trying to use up what we've already got never mind the, the more avenues we've got but what I gave in what I did in Salisbury was just try to give a real sort of potted history um, of John McCarthy quite simply from from birth to death really um, and also the events and the events within his family that he would have known within his lifestyle, within his lifespan, because purely through longevity, I suppose, which you could say is just an accident. But he's a fascinating chap in that he will he can take you from 1850s Southwark to the mid 1930s via seeing his son and his grandson go off to and come back from the First World War. So there's a there's a whole narrative just within his life, really. Um, and it's sort of at both ends that there's stuff that we don't particularly understand. I didn't spend a great deal of time talking about. Um, and then he brought up this property in Dorset Street and then he brought up this property in Great Pearl Street. Um, and then he, you know, the, the famous boxing match. and Because the, these things are known. But we managed to turn up some interesting stuff on his early years in Southwark, um, as most people know, his first sort of appearance in the historical record is the 1861 census, turned up some, I think, interesting context stuff on the area around there and some parallels with the environment he'd find himself in, in Dorset Street in later years, um, but also managed to turn up an 1871 census record, which showed that his family had links and also earlier birth certificates pre-1861 that suggest that the family actually had links with the East End before he moved to Spitalfields to start building up his property empire. So it's the kind of thing that 
it's not going to solve the case, but it just gives us a little bit more um, of an accurate understanding of someone. And then sort of finished off with a summary of some of the interesting stories about the Kendalls, um, who are a fascinating family in themselves. And as I say, um, also belong in the story, really, because John McCarthy managed to live long enough to uh, to see and enjoy a lot of their success, really. Um, and tied in quite nicely, of course, with uh, Fiona Kendall Lane kindly donating the... Uh, the famous fish knife for the, uh, the auction later uh, the evening before. Right, I was going to bring I, that up the uh, the fish knife auction, um, which people might have missed that, but it was a knife supposedly uh, pawned by Mary Kelly, in which after her death, McCarthy, the story goes, cashed in the pawn ticket and retrieved this knife, and it stayed in the family ever since. Is that basically the gist of it? That's the story, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting family story. Um, we'll never verify it. If you know one of these Ripper artifacts is real, that's the type of story it'll have, not some uh, convoluted tale of uh, taking it from a crime scene uh, policeman and stuff. It, uh, you know, that story, the one in the fish like, makes much more sense. But uh, I don't think it's something we could ever prove as being real. Unfortunately, we can only disprove it. And there was also a box of, of some sort that I saw they were auctioning off. What was the story behind that? Uh, the box was, there's a, um, an antique show on in the UK, on the BBC, um, Put Your Money Where Your Mouth Is, I think it, that's what it's called. And you have uh, antiques dealers uh, buying up various antiques, and then they've got to flog it to make a profit. And uh, one of them bought a box with 1888 written on it, they Googled 1888, found the link to Jack the Ripper, found the Whitechapel Society, and then offered to sell it to them. Um, and uh, there was a interesting uh, moment on the show when uh, Sue from the Whitechapel Society is meeting this antique dealer in a dark alleyway to uh, exchange some money for this box, and then they auctioned that off for the tra- for charity as well. So there's no connection to the Ripper crimes whatsoever. No, it no, it just has eighteen eighty eight written on it, and uh, it's a nice little. It, it's a nice box. <laughs> All right, uh, I think that pretty much covers the chats, if I'm not mistaken. At the conference, did we leave anybody out? Um, oh, Alan, Alan, um, Hicks. Alan Hicks. Oh. Yeah, he's the happiest man on earth. Yes, uh, is that, is that sarcasm there? <laughs> no, no. I mean, <laughs> is it Jamie Jolly Chat? He is. You've never met him quite so jolly. In fact, it's so jolly. Really? It shot is over from jolly into sinister, um, <laughs> maniacal, <laughs> maniacal laughter. Yeah, yeah. He's, a, he's a really nice guy. So he's the guy yeah. who um, who came into possession of the uh, you know the. Um, autobiography of, of Jack the Ripper, the Carnac Diary, um, and uh, he—it was. I thought he was brilliant. I thought that it was really nice for him. It was nice for everyone mm. who was. You know, you had to be practically insensate to work out there wasn't a whole load of politics going on behind the scenes at this conference. But he was someone who was completely non-aligned. Uh, mm. He was an independent character, had an interesting document, didn't really you know, have any preconceptions about it and came to talk to us about it because he was interested in it. And I thought that was fantastic. Excellent. And Paul Begg wrote uh, the introduction to that book, correct? That was just published? That's right. And and Paul Paul also... Part in the Q&A as well uh, with Alan at the end of his talk. And uh, what was that like, Paul Paul Begg's part in the conference? 
Uh, Paul Beck oh, he, had his own part. He had his own part with Neil's story where they were talking about Paul's kind of um, contribution to ripperology, I suppose. Um, and that was that was interesting. Um, it was. Mm. I mean, Can he's I just... he, he's been there and seen it. He's not just talking about it on a podcast. He's been there and seen it. So right, yeah. it, it does count, you know. Can, can I just mention also the um, the recognition award to Mark Galloway? Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I didn't go to Salisbury, but I know Mark quite well. He's he's one of the, well, I consider one of the unsung heroes in, in the field. And to top it all, to, to, and this is really annoying, he's a thoroughly nice chap as well. Yeah. And I thought that was yeah. fully deserved. It's, it's, a, oh, it's, a, it's a wonderful recognition for, think, for a wonderful guy. I think that's interesting, like what you just said, because yeah. I do think like a lot of the people that I consider to be the ones who do the real work, they aren't necessarily the ones who's everybody's knows their name kind of thing sure. they're not the one getting the bbc interview yeah. or the the whatever and there are a lot of people like you know deborah Ayer, people who yeah. put a tremendous amount of work and research into it and well, they're not lauded maybe we should do an entire yeah. podcast to the unsung heroes of ripperology because yeah, they're well, all I mean, for, for those that don't know i mean mark was if i'm sure somebody will correct me if i'm wrong but mark was kind of the guy that um, created the ripperologist magazine yeah. Mm. The, the forerunner to yeah. that. So, so without Mark, we wouldn't have a Ripperologist magazine. Well, the Cloak um, so, and Dagger so well, Cloak and, Cloak yes. and Dagger Club was his vision. He, you know, Absolutely. before the inst- you know, before because we're all dig- apparently we're digital immigrants or digital natives now. So, if you remember <laughs> a time when we weren't all connected together by the by the internet, then you're a digital immigrant. Um, and this was a tight. That was exactly you know that was when he was doing this. It, it was uh, yeah. you know it was a very visionary undertaking i think at the time nowadays people take it for granted that you can talk to anyone you like on facebook or over message boards or you know whatever so but at the time i think you know this was he was really the first person who had really had that idea and and ran with it yeah we are a lot of people are are quite shocked that it was mark who took that initiative because he's quite a he's quite a shy and quiet guy he's not someone who's really forthcoming about things and uh you know the fact that he got everyone together um it's quite remarkable really yeah uh, yeah, he he is a lovely guy mark is a lovely guy it has to be said absolutely but he is a quiet guy but he's very knowledgeable and he's very sharp and if you ever sit down on a one-on-one with him um, yes you have a bit of a laugh but you learn a lot as well oh yes definitely yeah yeah excellent i really do want to have an unsung heroes of ripperology maybe get the people who people should know their names, you know, more well, so than they when, do. I have to say, Ali, when when we, uh, I mean, I was someone who had a small part in Robert Anderson's talk because I was part of Team Syphilis. Um, <laughs> and John was, and Trevor was. So you're um, all just passing it amongst yourselves, okay. Yeah, right, you can't you can't really keep syphilis to yourself, it's not a secret. Yeah, so, we're, um, we're riddled. Yeah. So it it does it changes the way you think definitely, um, but people like Pete Whitby, Pete Whitby contributed to yeah. to that. I mean, mm. he's a doctor, so his understanding was absolutely fundamental to that. Livia, who Trevor mentioned, um, you know, so she contributed to at least two talks at the conference, but no one knows who she is. Um, there are loads of people I think doing really decent, honest work who don't necessarily get the recognition they deserve. Mm, absolutely. And speaking of decent, honest people doing honest work, uh, Neil Bell here has a new book out. 
So why don't we talk for, about that for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'm hoping that at some point we can, after we have all gotten the book and gotten to read it, I have not yet. It's just for those who don't know, Neil Bell has just published a book fresh off the presses. Uh, and I'm going to butcher this horribly. Neil Bell's new book, Capturing Jack the Ripper in the Boots of Bobby. Oh, I can't do it. In the, it's the bees. The bees get me all the time. Neil, why don't you tell us the title of your book? Bless you, Ali, struggling with English. Well, you know, Very American. I never said I was bright. I'm, it, it's the alliteration. I can't. My tongue trips on the alliteration all the time. Neil, tell us about your new book and what it's about. It's about life in the boots of a Bobby in Victorian England, basically, Anna. <laughs> and, and very aptly titled, then, considering it is capturing Jack the Ripper in the boots of yeah, Bobby of Victorian England. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of books out there, or, or a fair few books out there, that kind of take the, the, the case from the police perspective. I mean, the, probably the best-known one, and rightly so, is uh, Scotland Yard Investigates by Stuart Evans and Don Rumbleau. There's also, we've got the source book as well, which kind of the police files on the case. Quite an extensive overview of that. But it kind of, those books kind of look at it from the hierarchical point of view from from kind of inspectors upwards and their opinions and their take and i found over the years there was very little if anything that kind of tackles the the guys on on at ground level um the guys that pound the beat day in day out night in night out and there's very little understanding on what they actually did in terms of procedures and protocols and, and so on and so forth um so so i thought i'd basically shed a little light on that and I do find it interesting because my father was uh, actually a police officer for 40 years in uh, one of the uh, n not grand uh, areas of our country. And there is so much attention given to, you know, the McNaughtons and the higher ups and the, the big names that we know purely from they had status. And those weren't the guys who were boots on the ground, as you say, you know, in the boots. They weren't the guys there pounding the beats every single day. So I actually do, I can't wait to read this book, to be perfectly honest, because I do think those on the ground, we give so much, oh, well, McNaughton thought this, and, 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 yeah. and but, you know, he was a politician, and I'm, that's, that's not, a, there's my hyperbole again, you know, but the higher up you go in the ranks. Yeah, the, Matt Anderson was a barrister. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't delve into opinions on who the killer was. I mean, Jack is very much in the background of it. I mean, he's there or thereabouts. The the book is kind of split into two parts. The first part is the history, stroke uh, recruitment, stroke life as a constable, life as a detective, and the second part is looking at the murders and taking procedures from each of the murders and kind of like explaining the history and, and you know what, what exactly happened like i said i mean I, I can't recall anything i mean there's there's a few books going back i mean the, the best book i think that kind of delves into that is a book that was actually written a year after the murders and that's police um by um <laughs> the names have got me um hall richardson and uh tempest clarks clarkson i think it was uh, and th th because it's fresh and because it's like I say, it's a year after the murder, you get really good insight into what the guys were doing at ground level. But yeah, I mean, as you were saying, we tend to hear a lot from Abilene, from Swanson, from Anderson, McNaughton, Monroe, Warren, so on and so forth, which kind of gets repetitive for me. 
and I was really into what the the guys guys on the on the ground level went through as well. Doing the real work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, just pounding the beats in dark, dank Whitechapel, Spitterfields. Um, it's 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 quite a quite an ominous job when you think about it. You know, it's, it 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 weren't Disneyland. Let's put it that way. No, I I can imagine. Well, I don't want to. <laughs> if you had video right now, Mark Ripper is holding up uh, his copy of the book. He's apparently the only one grand enough to have it currently but uh i don't want to talk too much because i do want you i'm hoping you'll come on for a whole podcast uh as soon as we've all had a chance to read it can i lock you in now with a yes yeah i mean i mean we, we need to discuss fees obviously but oh yeah. of course yes absolutely <laughs> i mean i'll buy you some pineapple and vodka at the next I conference think, absolutely i think mark's in a unique position because but um, Mark actually went through the proofreading for me, which I'm very grateful for. So he's kind of already read it and kind of knows where I'm coming from from it. So uh, uh, he, he said he liked it. So if we want, oh, oh, I don't know if, if if I'd consider that. I mean, we've we've seen Mark Ripper uh, just stammer around for 20 minutes because he didn't want to offend a, a joke that he was about to tell. So. <laughs> Yeah, he's like probably the nicest guy in Ripperology, <laughs> so I'm not going to take his word for it. I could, I could hardly say uh, say otherwise, could I? So, um, I think I was I was very privileged to um, have a look at the manuscript before it went to the presses, and um, and it's a really good book. It's a it's a really uh, there isn't really anything else like it. I think it does kind of stand by itself, um, and I think it put me in mind of the sort of work which I think Peter Higginbottom has done for workhouses where there's a part where you kind of take a guided tour of a police station and you go in all the rooms and you see what happens in those rooms you, you, you really do get to know the kind of the ins and outs of what it was to be a policeman at the time so it is a very unique very unique, that's not a very good um, term in English <laughs> it's a, you know, you can't be very okay. unique you're either unique or you're not so it's, it's, it's a unique work in um in the field as far as I'm concerned and you know I think Neil deserves every credit the amount of research he did to get to the point where he was able to write that is phenomenal absolutely phenomenal um, uh, well I, I must state at this stage I did have a lot of help from a lot of people I'm very lucky to know some really good researchers obviously Rob Clack uh, Deborah Arif yourself Mark um, not so much Trevor Bond um <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I'm, I'm I'm really in a un. I was also in a unique position where um, I was um, kind of taken under the wing both at the City of London Police by Catherine Coulthard and uh, at, at the Metropolitan Police by uh, Keith Skinner and uh, Philip Barnes Warden. Um, so so yeah, I've, I've had good people around me. So so yes, there is a lot of research going into it. Yes, I did do a lot of research. I mean, I kind of started it around about 2007, but. There is a lot of stuff in there from other people, and I've, I have acknowledged them all. Um, but um, yeah, some really good stuff, and I'm really grateful for, for people's help on it. Which kind of almost not to sort of co-opt the discussion about your book to go back to reinforce a point I made previously, but what you did in terms, so for example, you found the wall writing photograph which you published in Riffyologist some time ago, and part of that was because you can correct me if I'm wrong, was because you'd made a positive relationship with the people at the City of London archive and yeah. you had, and information was therefore forthcoming, right? So this is, yeah. this is. I mean, I think this is what, 
I've, this is my experience in research as well, is that if you actually go into things in a sort of polite, friendly way, you actually do end up getting information back a lot of the time. Um, and yes. sometimes when channels of information have been shut down in reprology, it's because people have been too bombastic and too aggressive about their approach towards people holding information. That's right. I mean, I'll give you an example. It actually wasn't the work I did. There's another guy who did a lot of work, um, which you know, Mark, um, who you know, I should say, Mark, is um, Sean Crundle. Now, I know that's a name that many of you will be scratching your heads over, but um, he kind of sits in the background and does a, he's done a hell of a lot of research on Jack. But he's the guy that actually pinned down the... Um, uh, there's a photo in there um, of uh, Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown, the, the first positive identified photoball photo of the of the guy now sean it's actually a photo from apothecary's hall where um, gordon brown was actually a president of their society around about 1909 and sean actually approached them and did a lot of negotiating it was very you know that he basically he's very polite straightforward in, in what he was he was asking he was you know i'm a researcher i'm looking at this is there any possibility that you have a photo of this guy and they were very very nice i mean i actually used the photo I, um they were very free with it um yeah sure no problems um but um by by way of thanks i actually donated uh, some money to to their society um, because they didn't have to do that they could have been quite quite awkward with me about it but they didn't and they were very free and open and um yeah, so so Mark, Mark is absolutely spot on. It, it's you know, you can't go in there all guns blazing, stating demanding this, demanding that, because at the end of the day, it's their information. It's up to them how how they you know how they hand it out, or if if they indeed want to hand it out at all. So so the, the moral of the story is is basically you know we have to be nice about things and just don't be a dick about it. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on than that pithy assessment. People, if you want to succeed in life, don't be a dick. I want to thank our panelists, John Reese, Trevor Bond, Neil Bell, Mark Ripper, and Jonathan Menges for taking the time to be with us here today. Until the next time. Thanks, Thanks for Ali. having us, Ali. Hello. Thanks, Ali. Cheers, Ali. The, the character based on my personality was a East End prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>